Last week, we talked about, it was the fifth commandment, and so we, we started looking at the second half of the Ten Commandments. This is the horizontal. And we talked about the call for children to honor and obey their parents. We talked about what that means, that that word honor denotes uh, reverence, obedience, gratitude. We looked at the flip side. We talked about parents and, and how parents are to parent, what it means to be a godly parent. What does the word say about parenting? And I realized that some of you may have left discouraged. And here's why. Um, you know, God's word is meant to convict us, amen, and correct us and rebuke us. And, and we hold it up like a mirror. And oftentimes what we see is, well, I, I have failed. I've missed the mark. And so some of you who have parented for 20 plus years, now your kids are grown up. Maybe you thought hard about last week and you realized, I didn't do that well. I didn't parent well. And, and maybe you're despairing, and I hope you're not, because we're not saved by parenting. We're saved by trusting in Jesus. And there's only one perfect father, and there's only one perfect son. Amen? Here's what I would say. If you would say, you know what, my, my years of parenting are done. I've now entered into a new season of grandparenting. Praise God for that. What does repentance look like? If you can honestly say, you know, I didn't parent well. I wasn't faithful. Um, I struggled. Repentance would be confessing that to the Lord, but also reaching out to your children who may be out of the house, who may have their own families and saying, you know what? I was convicted by God's word. I didn't do this well. I'm sorry, son and daughter, but I'm trusting the Lord for forgiveness and I want to do better. Amen? And children, hey, listen, if you're still in the house, do better <laughs> by God's grace. Parents, if you still have children in the house, do better by God's grace. Look to the Spirit, look to the Word, and look to the church. Um, that's really all I wanted to say on that. But again, don't despair. Rest. Rest in the gospel. We're not saved by parenting. We're saved by Christ and what he's done. Is true? All right. Um, continuing in the Ten Commandments, uh, commandment number six, uh, the title of my sermon, A Crime Against the Glory of God. And that's really what murder is. It is a crime against the glory of God. Here's the big idea. Value life. Value life and proclaim new life in Christ. Who's ever heard of art vandalism? Who's ever committed art vandalism? Hopefully no one. Actually, I'm sure if you have kids, they all have, right? Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. A few things. Rembrandt. I like Rembrandt. Um, I like his work. But Rembrandt's Night Watch, it's a famous piece has been vandalized, not once, but numerous times. Isn't that crazy? So first, on January 13th, 1911, that was a long time ago, an unemployed Navy cook tried to cut it with a knife. <laughs> Strange. And then in 1975, William de Rieschke, an unemployed school teacher, both these guys were unemployed, they have nothing better to do, uh, they cut... He cut dozens of zigzag lines in the painting with a knife before being wrestled to the ground by security guards. Similar attempts have been made on the Mona Lisa over the years. In 1974, <clears throat> the owner of an art gallery in New York City spray-painted over Picasso. Probably looked better after he did that. But still, right? these are all considered masterpieces, Rembrandt's, uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa, Picasso. 
which individuals tried to destroy, and in some cases they did, they have. Works of art have been destroyed by vandalism. And this should cause us anger, right? When something beautiful is destroyed, it should madden us. It should cause righteous indignation. And again, it's like when one of my boys, so my, my kids love to build with blocks. And so uh, if Clark, you know, builds this massive block tower and Luke comes in and destroys it, what's Clark going to do? He's going to cry. He's going to get angry. He's going to be upset. How much more significant is the destruction of a fellow image bearer, a human being? To murder is to destroy what God has made. So our passage, it's really two words in Hebrew. The English is a little bit longer, but this is Exodus 20:13. You shall not murder. So where are we headed today? Here's our trajectory. First, we need to answer the most basic question. Why is murder wrong? Now, maybe that goes without saying, but let's make sure that we understand our answer from Scripture, right? I mean, of course, all of us would say murder is wrong, but what does the Bible have to say? Second, where does murder come from? Where does murder come from? Third, is killing ever justified in Scripture? Fourth, how does the sixth commandment relate to abortion? Let's talk about that. Fifth, how does Jesus himself transform the sixth commandment? And then finally, number six, how do we honor the sixth commandment? What does that look like today for us as believers? All right, so number one, why is murder wrong? What's the big deal? First, what is murder? Again, the Hebrew in Exodus 20.13 consists of two words which literally translate never murder. That's what the Hebrew says, never murder. Doug Stewart writes, the Hebrew term used here, it's a fun word, ratsak, ratsak. Love killing rats? I mean, maybe that's, does that work, Dave? Okay. He says, is specific to putting to death improperly for selfish reasons rather than with authorization as killing in the administration of justice or killing in divinely ordained holy war would be. Now, the Hebrew word used, what's it again? Ratzak. It denotes murder okay, with intentional violence. At the heart of this word, two things premeditation and deliberateness, okay? Premeditation and deliberateness. Now, why is murder wrong? Why is it wrong? First, I mean, the obvious answer is God says don't do it, and so when you do it, who are you disobeying? God. And so it's wrong to disobey God, but let's go a little bit deeper. Can we do that? What we learn at the beginning of God's grand story is that mankind, now God made everything, is true? But he made people, human beings, special. He made us in his, made us in his image. Okay, so that's, hold on to that. Genesis 127, so God created man in his own image. And that should wow us. That should humble us. In the image of God, he created him. It's repeated for emphasis. Male and female, don't forget that, he created them. So this reality, the fact that we're made in God's image, that reality imbues mankind, us, with intrinsic value and a specific purpose. Everyone say intrinsic value. Specific purpose. 
Don't forget that. And that specific purpose is to reflect, reveal, and glorify God. Murder, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Murder, therefore, is a crime against the glory of God. It's a crime against the glory of God. It is an attempt to prevent the spread of God's glory, which is God's unique purpose for all that he's made, especially mankind. Murder is an attempt to prevent the spread of God's glory. Now, when you, when you couch it in those terms, that's really significant. If God's glory is the most important thing and murder is the attempt to prevent the spread of God's glory, is murder a big deal? Of course it is. So again, to murder is to seek to destroy the image of God. Life is sacred. Amen? It is. It's fleeting, but it's sacred. Murder, therefore, is an attempt to abolish what God has clearly established as sacred. I put this in your notes. Murder, first and foremost, is a crime against God. It's really a crime against God. Now, let's do some context work here. This is really important, okay? Commandment number six, which is, you shall not, don't murder, okay, must be read alongside commandment number two, which what is commandment number two? No idols, right? No idols, no images. Why no images? Because we're God's image. Look around. What are we? We're God's image. And we function correctly when we acknowledge the Lord as the one true God in whose image we are made and seek his glory in all that we do. God's image bearers were created for worship. An image bearer's job, our job, is to reflect the Lord, to glorify him. Isn't that sweet? That is sweet. So to eradicate an image bearer, to murder, is again to seek to decrease the spread of God's glory. Murder silences the worshiper. Murder silences worship. And thus seeks to prevent the worship of the one true God. Now Genesis 9-6. Genesis 9-6. The text says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Whoa. Okay, so... Uh, lex talionis, this is Latin, law of retaliation, right? I mean, you shed blood, what's going to happen? You kill an innocent man, what's going to happen? What's the consequence? What's the punishment? You're, you're going to die, right? Let's keep reading. By man shall his blood be shed. Why? What's the reason? For God made man in his own image. Okay, so according to Genesis 9-6, the punishment for murder this is the intentional shedding of human blood is what? It's death. Now, what is the grounds? What is the reason for such a serious punishment? The text says, and I paused here for a reason, for God made man in his own image. The language used there denotes ownership and purpose. Mankind, having been made by God, belongs to who? Belongs to God. And not only that, but mankind was made for a specific purpose, namely to glorify him. So to murder, okay, to murder is to take from God what is his and to elevate one's evil purpose above God's good purpose. 
Not only that, murder is an attempt to function or operate in divine prerogative. Who has the right to take life and to give life? Do we? No, God. This is a great quote by Kenneth Matthewson. He writes, to take human life unlawfully is to assert God's sovereignty over life and death. Who wants to be found doing that? Hopefully none of us. I read this recently. A pastor said, by the time our young children enter school, who has kids in school? Raise your hands. Got kids in school. Okay. He goes on to say, they may have already witnessed several thousand, thousand murders, shootings, stabbings, or beatings where? On television. Our culture, and I'm speaking of Hollywood here, is obsessed with what? Murder. It's obsessed with murder. And not just killing, but graphic and grotesque forms of murder for the purpose of entertainment. Our culture has exploited this most heinous crime, this most heinous act, for our own entertainment. And I think Christians, too, have become desensitized to murder. The destruction of a, what? An image bearer. That which God views as sacred. What was one of the major purposes of God's law? So that Israel, by internalizing God's law, would be what? Like the world or different, distinct, or set apart. And too often, the church looks more like the world. Lord, help us. We've defined murder. We've talked about why murder is so significant and serious. And I think if you were going to summarize, murder, at the heart of murder, is an attempt to prevent the spread of God's glory. Okay? Number two, where does murder come from? As we're going to see later on in more detail, it comes from the, comes from the heart. That, that's where it begins. I, I love Genesis. Maybe we should have started there. <laughs> but Genesis 4. This is God speaking to who? Speaking to Cain. Cain, the brother of? Ah, you guys know. Listen, in Washington, and when I lived in Boston, <laughs> I couldn't assume that for anybody. <laughs> Who's Cain? Who's Abel? Who's Paul? I got that a lot. Who's Paul? <laughs> Genesis 4, 7 to 8. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he murdered him, killed him. Murder is the fruit of a sinful heart. A heart, now this is important, a heart that cares more for personal glory than God's glory. Why did Cain murder his brother? Why do you think he did that? You know, this is the first murder recorded in Scripture. Why did Cain murder his brother? And I'll tell you why. He wanted recognition and he didn't get it. He wanted glory, and it wasn't his to have. <laughs> he was jealous of his brother Abel. Unlike Abel, this is important, unlike Abel, he didn't truly comprehend the matchless worth of the Creator. Cain was a glory stealer. He was a glory stealer. And this resulted in murderous thoughts and actions. 
When we are concerned more with our glory than God's glory, we are playing a deadly game. Let me explain. Imagine with me, if you will, that that's the way you operate. You right now are more concerned with your glory than God's glory. So if that's the case, when we, again, you're assuming with me, we're pretending that we're more concerned with our glory than God's, when we're not honored, or worse yet, when we're dishonored, what do we want? We want revenge. Because we're the most important. We value ourselves more than anyone else. And when ourselves, when we are dishonored, we got to act, right? We want revenge. And when this happens, what happens? Things escalate, and they escalate quickly. Cain had failed to grasp and be grasped by the glory of God. The very thing revealed in the first half of the Ten Commandments. Now, this is important. Catch this. This is why reading the Ten Commandments in context is so important. The first half reveals the matchless worth and glory of God. What do we see in the first four commandments? God is creator. He's savior. He is. He's worthy. He's worthy of what? Everything. Our lives. Our worship. There's no one like him. Amen? And that's where we have to start. Now follow me here. God alone is worthy of praise. He must be praised and worshipped appropriately. From the first two commandments, okay, we learn that it matters who we worship, and how we worship. It matters that we worship God, and it matters how we worship God. Is true? Okay, okay, so that's the first two. Third, we read, we learn from commandment number three, that his name must be honored and represented well. And then fourthly, the whole reason we rest, the whole reason we gather as God's people is for our glory. No, it's for his glory. So God is supreme. In order to do the second half, we must start with the first. Murder. Everybody say murder. Okay. Now pay attention here. Murder is the result of ignoring the first half of the Ten Commandments. I promise you. Because the first half has to do with God. The first half establishes His supreme worth. He is the Creator. He is the Savior. Are we? No. Those who ignore the first half view themselves as supreme. And if ever their place of supremacy is threatened, murder results. If not, in action in the heart, in the mind. Now, the motive for murder is jealousy, selfishness, and self-worship. The remedy... The remedy for the sinful heart is coming to who? Coming to Jesus. Trusting in Him and seeking His glory. Not ours, but His above all else. Then, and only then, will we value what He values. And He values human life. Amen? Murder, now write this down if you want. Murder flows out of a heart that is turned inward rather than outward. Number three, does the Bible speak of justifiable killing? Maybe you're wondering. Yes. (laughs) According to Genesis 9, Exodus 21, Exodus 22, in Romans 13, just to name a few, there are times when the taking of another human life doesn't fall under the sixth commandment. 
Kevin DeYoung writes, the sixth commandment did not prohibit self-defense, capital punishment, and just wars. But it did prohibit premeditated intentional murder. So let's examine a few of these. Again, Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Cap- no, this is capital punishment. Okay, Capital punishment for murder. Why? Capital punishment for murder was for the purpose of defending God's image and preventing such a horrific crime. The significance of the punishment revealed the significance of the crime, namely the murderous destruction of a fellow image bearer. We see this again in Romans 13. Romans 13, 3 to 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? And who put those people in authority? God did. Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. War, too, is often justifiable. Man, the Lord has blessed me with some really strange neighbors over the years. And I, I love them. They're, they're all wonderful. And honestly, my neighbors over the past, I'd say, 12 years have presented great evangelistic opportunities. And for that, I'm very thankful. My neighbor, the, the last house that we lived at in Washington, I'm going to call him Andy. It's a good name, Andy. Um, close to Andy. <laughs> he uh, worked with the Navy SEALs. He was retired in his 50s. This was a bad man. I was glad he was my neighbor. Uh, honestly, I mean, he was just a big African-American dude, big beard. He was from Cleveland, but he was the sweetest guy. He loved my kids. He loved my kids. If you remember the show Home Improvement, what was, uh, what was his neighbor, Tim's neighbor, Al? No, Al was his coworker. What was the... Wilson, Wilson. yes, Wilson. Um, they'd talk over the fence. All, and that, that was me and Andy. We talked over the fence all the time. Now, yes, I was in his home, and he came to ours, but he had a lot of questions. You see, to this day, I'm, I'm not sure where Andy is spiritually. I got to share the gospel with him quite a few times. But he was concerned about his past. He'd taken lives. And he said, man, what, what does the Bible say about this, Chris? I mean, I need your help. And I said, brother, because he claimed to be a Christian. He knew all the right answers. He said, I said, the Bible's clear. You know, war can be justified. And I explained that to him. Listen to what this brother says. He says, peace is always the goal, of course. But war is sometimes necessary to defend peace. We'd all agree with that, right? The Old Testament clearly did not prohibit warfare since God sent Israel into battle and claimed to be a warrior God who fought for them. Now, I remember I, I used this line of argument with my friend Andy. I looked at Luke 3 with him. So in Luke 3, John the Baptist is found preparing the way for the Messiah. For Je- He's getting people ready for Jesus. He's getting re- people ready for the king, right? He's proclaiming repentance. The king's coming. Now, listen with me to this conversation that John the Baptist has with a group of Roman soldiers. This is Luke 3, 14. Soldiers also asked him, 
And we, the soldiers said, what, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not exhort money. Don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Okay, so don't extort. Be content with your wages. Don't falsely accuse. Don't threaten. It's interesting what John doesn't say. He doesn't say, leave the wicked Roman army. He doesn't say following Jesus and serving in the military are mutually exclusive. Instead, what does he say? Be men of integrity. Be honest. Be good soldiers. That's it. Number four. How does the sixth commandment relate to abortion? Alistair Bag, and this is hard to read, but I think the numbers are, are good for us to hear. Abortion is a national disgrace on such a scale that the Nazi Holocaust pales in statistical comparison. The most recent statistics show that reported abortions are taking place at the rate of 23,286 per week. Per week. And this really puts it in perspective. He says, imagine each week a major basketball area, arena, sorry, a major basketball arena in your city being filled to overflowing capacity with an aborted baby in every seat. Unthinkable, unconscionable, undeniable. Now, historically, the church has always opposed abortion. It's true. It has. For some reason, this issue has become more controversial over the years, even among some Christians. But for Christians, just, this should never be the case, right? It should never be the case. The Bible is clear that abortion is murder. The unjustifiable kind that is being addressed by the Sixth Commandment. This goes back to the very beginning of the early church. Who's ever read the Didache? Come on, guys. You guys don't like reading first century Christian documents? So the Didache, I would compare the Didache to the Baptist faith in message 2000. It was really just, it's not authoritative by any means. It's not part of scripture. The Didache just gave us a window into what the early church believed, how they functioned. So it's helpful in that regard historically. But listen to this excerpt from the Didache. It's a first century document. Do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. Christians have always known this was wrong. Psalm 139, which we read just earlier, verse 13 and verse 15 read, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Verses 13 and 15 describe God's intimate and intentional involvement in creating who? Us. In verse 15, the language of intimately woven in the depths of the earth is a metaphor for the hiddenness of the womb. Like an artist, God takes great care in designing our bodies. And this begins when? At conception. This truth sheds light on the dignity of the human body, the human person. Something that must be recognized before birth. Furthermore, and I remember Aaron, you talked about this at BBS. In verse 16, we have the word for 
embryo, the Hebrew word. The text says, your eyes saw my unformed substance, embryo. The verb for see, now again, it's easy to look over that. The text says, your eyes saw. What does that mean? The verb to see here means to know, to enjoy looking at, to look at with concern. God is concerned with unborn babies, beginning at conception, through the earliest stages of development, and right on through birth. The unborn baby has immense value in the eyes of the Lord. Therefore, we too should value the unborn baby. Now, the Bible clearly identifies that which begins at conception as life. It's life. There's no other word to describe it, and therefore worthy of protecting and preserving. Now, the fact that so many in our culture today approach abortion, this killing, so cavalierly should break our hearts. Amen? May we cry out for the unborn. And may this despicable plight move us to be like our Savior. You ever wonder why Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb? What's he weeping for? Death. It's not the way things should be, right? When we hear of abortion being reported, we should weep. This is not the way things should be. I read this article, I think, three or four years ago. This is really helpful, church. So I'm, I'm, I'm just going to summarize it for you. In this article, it compared abortion to the Holocaust and the Rwanda genocides of 1994. It said, at the heart of these horrific crimes against humanity was dehumanization. Let me explain. The violent parties responsible for mass murder began to speak of their victims as cockroaches and rats. They dehumanized them. They viewed them as less than human. That's what dehumanizing means, right? And so rather than speaking of them as people or persons, they spoke of them as cockroaches and rats. They dehumanized them. And we see this, and I I think you see where I'm going, we see this in the world of abortion as well. People in our culture who are pro-choice or pro-abortion, we should love them and we should give them the gospel, amen? But they no longer speak of the baby in the mother's womb as a baby, but as a what? A fetus or a mass of cells. What are they doing? They are dehumanizing the human life. When the sanctity of human life is tossed to the wind, it's easy to kill, right? I won't hesitate to step on a cockroach. Will you? Lord, help us. May we speak of human life the way the Bible does. Amen? Now, let me say this. If you have committed abortion in your past, please know that there is forgiveness in Christ. Amen? There is forgiveness in Christ. I would encourage you, I would plead, rest in his finished work. Satan, the accuser, is going to do all that he can to bring up past sins, right? To try to put them on your shoulders, to weigh them in your face. But if you've trusted in Jesus, guess what? The accuser has no ground to stand on. Why? Because a new verdict has been spoken over you. What is it? Righteous, forgiven in Christ. That record of debt is gone. Amen? So rest. If you've committed abortion, please know there is grace and forgiveness in Jesus. Rest in him. Trust in him. This same logic, 
Actually, I think I want to, I'll come back to this. I do want to share a story in a minute, a personal story. The same logic that uh, abortion issues, pro-choice, pro-abortion, is also applied to euthanasia or assisted suicide. Let me talk about that, okay? Because this, this too falls in the same category. It's murder. It's true. The elderly, those confined to wheelchairs, those with special needs, and those who have lost their memory are viewed by many in society as a nuisance, as an economic burden, or simply as less than. And this is contrary, contrary to the biblical worldview. All life, all life is precious to God. Therefore, all life should be valued and protected. Amen? These are precious image bearers. Um, this is going to be a hard one this year. There was a family in Washington. They, they, when we planted uh, almost seven years ago now, they left with us and they came and they were a huge help. They were a, a middle-aged family, uh, dear brother and sister. They had a daughter, Maddie, who had severe special needs, confined to a wheelchair, could do nothing on her own, couldn't communicate well at all. They had to feed her, wash her, put her to bed. Oh, but they did it with such grace and love. Man, Maddie was such a blessing to our church family. We got to watch this couple care for her, love her, serve her. And that opened the door for so many gospel conversations, friends. It was incredible how the Lord used Maddie for his kingdom purposes. And our church loved her, man. We served her. We cared for her. You know who really loved her? Clark, my son. He loved Maddie. He always prayed for her. He always asked how she was doing. She'd be wheeled in to the church every Sunday in her wheelchair like this, and Clark would go stand beside her. (laughs) It was so sweet. Maddie grew very sick in her mid-20s. Really sick, friends. And her parents did everything they could do to preserve her life. But she finally progressed to a point where the end was inevitable. Everything shut down. She was hanging by a thread and we prayed and we sought the Lord and we waited. And we prayed and we sought the Lord and we waited. But there came a point when the family chose to terminate treatment. This is not the same thing as termination of life. They were choosing to end treatment, not life. As Alistair Begg notes, this is what it sometimes takes to allow another human being to die with dignity. Death with dignity is not a euphemism for euthanasia. The problem with euthanasia, which is the active killing of another human being, is mankind's attempt to assert God's prerogative. Who alone has the authority to take life? The Lord. This is 1 Samuel 2.6. The Lord brings death and the Lord makes alive. He brings down to the grave, and he raises up. I wasn't going to share this, but I think I'm going to. I think it's important that we know what's happening in our world. Are, are you familiar with the, the new laws for euthanasia in Canada? This is unbelievable. Let me talk about this just for a moment. It was recently reported in the Washington Post that between 2016, that was not that long ago, in 2021, Canadian medical personnel administered lethal doses to more than 31,000 people. 31,000. 
who were usually, but not always, terminally ill. This is heartbreaking. What is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. Such an act is tantamount to calling God untrue and irrelevant. Untrue in that it is a judgment call, right? There's a judgment call being made that is at loggerheads with the clear teaching of Scripture. And irrelevant because the Bible states that God determines when someone is born and when someone dies. It's his prerogative, not ours. Again, hear me out here. Those who support abortion or euthanasia are operating from an unbiblical worldview. We must pray for the gospel to penetrate such areas. That is the world's only hope. It's true because the gospel transforms worldview. Okay? The gospel transforms worldview. Our thinking will never be brought in line with God's truth until we're given new hearts by the Spirit of God. Amen? So that's what we need to pray for. Number five, and this is really important, how does Jesus transform the sixth commandment? Jesus literally goes to the heart of the matter. Pun intended. (laughs) Jesus literally goes to the heart of the matter. Now, let's be honest here. I think most of us think we're doing pretty well when it comes to the sixth commandment. Right? I mean, you're, hey, come on. I never killed anyone. I never murdered. Is that so? I have. You guys are like, I knew it. I knew that kid. He's in Washington too long. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, listen to what Jesus says. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Mark 7 20 and 21. And he said, Jesus, what comes out of a person, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Jesus looks to the what? He looks to the heart. The condition that gives rise to murder and other violent acts. It begins with anger. It begins with anger. Anger. Everybody say anger. You've never been angry, have you? Anger, unchecked and ignored, is like an active volcano ready to explode. Unbridled and unconfessed anger typically results in the destructive pursuit of revenge. Jesus plums the depths of the sixth commandment. Murder begins in the heart. And those who have murderous thoughts, indoor speak murderous words, are guilty. Guilty of violating the sixth commandment. I don't want you to raise your hands, but we're going to think hard about these questions. Have you ever harbored hateful thoughts toward another image bearer? Have you ever wished someone harm? 
Have you ever spoken out maliciously toward another? You know, Jesus summarizes the second half of the Ten Commandments by saying this, love your neighbor as yourself. Murder is the opposite of love. Murder is the opposite of love. It is the gross application of pure hatred. And it begins in the heart, and it manifests itself in so many destructive ways. As one brother has said, we kill people all the time with contemptuous anger, our animosity and malice, our hostility and gossip. Little hidden murders. Thankfully, there's good news for murderers like us. None of us can keep the commandments perfectly. It's true. But there is one who did. Oh, there is one who did. We can't change our hearts, but there is one who can. We can't eradicate our sinful record before God, but thankfully there is one who has. The good news is that Jesus Christ has provided his people with a perfect record, his. <laughs> a perfect sacrifice, his. Forgiveness, new hearts, and new power for holy living. Now, the, I say this all the time, and I hope you get it. I hope we get it. The good news of the gospel concerns two twin realities. In Christ, we get forgiveness. Everybody say forgiveness. Amen. Praise God. Amen? We get forgiveness. Meaning, our sinful record is expunged. No mas. It's gone in Christ. And replaced with his perfect righteousness. His perfect record is given to us. Amen. And not only that, here's the other side of the coin. But in Christ, we are transformed to live differently. We get a new nature with new Godward desires by the Holy Spirit. Are you thankful? Number six. Last question. How do we honor the sixth commandment? A few things here. Number one, fight for the unborn. Fight for the unborn. We must fight for the unborn, doing all that we can to help women choose life and to pray for and to continue to vote for legislation that would help protect human life. Now, we celebrate Roe being overturned, amen? But as long as children are still being aborted, there's work to be done, right? I mean, is the, is the abortion issue now solved? No, it's not. What are some things that we can do? Support a pregnancy resource center? Even consider adoption. And there are four families right now at Kelty's that are adopting. Did you know that? That are pursuing adoption. Amen? You know, and I asked Haley if I could share this. This was um, Clark's eight. Probably six and a half years ago. Haley had uh, an extended family member. So someone on Haley's side of the family that had gotten pregnant. Young gal not walking with the Lord, and it was brought to our attention that she was going to have an abortion. And we immediately reached out, and we said, sweetie, please, we beg you, have the baby. We'll pay for everything. We'll cover all the medical expenses. We'll adopt. Just don't do abortion. Don't get rid of that beautiful life. Please, let us step in. Let us help. And by God's grace, guess what? She chose to have the baby. And guess what? She's a mommy to that baby today. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we, we were like, 
don't know how we're going to do this, babe, but we're going to do it. We're all in. What can we do? And by God's grace, she kept that baby, and she's doing so much better today. Preach the gospel. I mentioned this earlier. What changes worldview? The gospel. The gospel. So preach the gospel. Listen, you can argue all you want, but unbelievers are not going to think differently until they're made alive by the Spirit. Dead people think differently. They need to be made alive. We have to be made alive. It's true. This gospel that we love and celebrate and proclaim and sing about reconciles sinners to God and changes hearts. What does a new heart see? The sanctity of human life. And this brings us to our next point. Evangelize the lost. Do you know, the, the sixth commandment is really all about doing good to fellow image bearers, right? That's really what it's about. What is the greatest good we can do to a fellow image bearer? What? We can proclaim to them their greatest need. And what is that? Who is that? It's not really a what, it's a who. Jesus Christ. Again, if honoring the sixth commandment means seeking the good of our fellow image bearers, then we must seek their greatest good, which is reconciliation to a holy God through trusting in Jesus Christ. Image bearers, and I hope this wrecks your heart today, image bearers are daily dying and going to hell. It's true. This is happening every moment of every day. Who do they need? They need Christ. Therefore, we must boldly proclaim Christ to the lost and call them, unbelievers, to repent, turn from sin, turn from being a glory stealer to giving God the glory by trusting in his son, Jesus Christ. Again, this is the greatest good we can do a fellow image bearer. Tell them the good news. Call them to repent and believe. Number three, forgive it's in your notes. Forgive, seek reconciliation, and trust the Lord. We further honor the sixth commandment by choosing to forgive and trust. We forgive those who wrong us. Amen? We don't seek revenge. We forgive those who wrong us, and we trust our perfectly just judge. And who is that? That's the Lord. He's the perfectly just judge. Will we as Christians be wronged by others? course we will. But as Christians, we must always be prepared to forgive and pursue reconciliation and trust our just judge who promises to one day right all wrongs. Amen? The last thing is this. Examine your heart. Examine your heart today. Do you currently harbor evil thoughts toward another? Right now, do you? Examine your heart. Are you bitter? Do you hate a fellow image bearer? Do you wish them harm? Is there unforgiveness in your heart? Do you have a tendency to cut down others with your words? If so, repent. Repent and pray for the Spirit of God to work through the Word of God to make you more like the Son of God. We almost got it. Son of God. I mean, with the gospel. Christ was killed in our place so that we could be rescued from not just eternal death, 
but our own murderous hearts. Amen? Friends, listen. We are murderers, all of us. We have wicked hearts. We need rescuing. We need salvation. We need forgiveness. We need transformation in Christ. And as we sing, in Christ alone. He is the remedy, the cure. Trust in Jesus. Turn from sin. If you're a glory stealer, get off the throne. Acknowledge that you're not king. The true king is Jesus, who lived the life we could not live, died the death we deserved on the cross, taking the punishment that we should have taken, and we will take if we don't trust in him. And then he rose again, proving all his claims are true and that a way has been provided for sinners like us to be forgiven and made right with God. Repent and believe. I want us to pray Psalm 139, 23 to 24. Pray with me. Oh God, search me and know me. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me, lead us in the way everlasting. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.